BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. In the past year since the pandemic began, the statewide homicide rate has increased 30%, even as property crimes and jail populations have fallen. In Sacramento, lawmakers are considering more bills aimed at relaxing the tough-on-crime laws of the past. All this is exacerbating friction between reform-minded district attorneys and law enforcement in the state. We'll talk with San Francisco's District Attorney, Chesa Boudin, and Vern Pearson, President of the California District Attorney Association, about their conflicting views on how to best address crime and criminal justice and the impact the pandemic is having on the state's crime rates. That's next on Forum, right after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. After California shut down last year, property crimes plummeted, yet violent crimes increased. It's unclear how the reopening of California will impact these numbers, but the data is sure to become fodder in an ongoing debate in California over how to approach criminal justice. For the last decade, the state has undergone a sea change in criminal justice policy, with voters and lawmakers rolling back tough-on-crime sentencing laws. And voters have installed pro-reform-minded district attorneys in counties including Los Angeles, Contra Costa, and San Francisco, even as traditional law enforcement groups and other critics push back. It's part of a national debate over crime and punishment and rehabilitation. And we're going to dig into all of it this hour. I'm very excited to be joined by Chase Boudin, San Francisco's district attorney. Welcome, District Attorney Boudin. Thank you, Marisa. Great to be here. Also with us for the hour, Vern Pearson, El Dorado's count, El Dorado County's district attorney. Uh, Vern Pearson's also president of the California District Attorney Association. Thank you for joining us, DA Pearson. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Um, and, you know, I cover this issue a lot, so I know both of you guys pretty well. And I'm really excited to have this conversation because I think um, – you know, you both represent differing viewpoints, but the, the idea that we can disagree without being disagreeable, I hope. So I'm excited to dig in. Um, I want to start with you, D.A. Pearson. Um, as I noted in the intro, you know, violent crime has really increased while we've seen property crime plummet, kind of the opposite, quite frankly, of what we had seen in years previous to this. What do you make of that? What What, what are you hearing from around the state? What are you seeing in your own county? Um, and, and understanding that, you know, often criminal justice uh, data is, is hard to understand in the moment. Sometimes it takes us years to really identify trends. Well, you you said a lot there. Uh, it, it really does take a little bit of time to identify trends. Uh, I think that it's a uh, it's a fair statement to say things like shootings, violence, assaults, 
uh, robberies are are have increased uh, both uh, uh, I think significantly in the first few months of this year, uh, and they increased uh, during the entire year of 2020. Uh, um, uh, on the property crime side, I think it's important to recognize that that the metrics of how we measure property crimes have changed over the last oh, six or seven years, and uh, many property crimes went from being felonies to misdemeanors. And, uh, and in fact, because they're misdemeanors and because of the way we're treating misdeme many misdemeanors here in California, they've essentially become nothing. Uh, and let me give you a for instance of what I'm talking about. Uh, uh, with certain types of property crimes, uh, they were previously uh, uh, certain types of thefts uh, below uh, uh, the cutoff now is raised to $950 um, for a period of time. There was an infamous case there in San Francisco where a, uh, a, a federal officer's firearm was stolen out of his gun and was used in a shooting, a tragic killing where a young woman was killed. Uh, uh, that was several years ago, though. I mean, this is not. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's yeah. six years, six, seven years ago, something like that. But in that moment in time, because of changes in the law, that theft of that firearm was a was a misdemeanor. Now that's since been corrected, but there's a lot of changes like that that have gone on. So I guess what I'm saying is that, and I get into the specific weeds of it. I don't really believe that it's fair to say property crimes have plummeted. I think. Okay. Reported, well, I'm looking. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at PPIC. These aren't differentiating between misdemeanors. We're just talking about all reported thing. Uh, you know, larcenies, well, well, break-ins, uh, home burglaries. So you, have, what's your experience though in El Dorado County specifically? I mean, what have you seen on the ground? Uh, well, I would say that we have a, a perceptible increase in crime. Uh, the biggest thing, and it, it was alluding to it in, in terms of the reports of property crimes, a, a lot of retailers in the last several years simply do not report property crimes. In other words, that uh, uh, retail stores, many retail stores, all the chain retail stores, because of the changes in law in California, they have instructed their staff to not stop or detain or call law enforcement. And they simply re regard uh, low-level thefts yeah, as, yeah. as being a cost of doing business. And so that really changes it. And where, where you see property crimes where it's most accurately reported is uh, car burglaries and car thefts because insurance carriers require uh, uh, people who have suffered that type of a loss to actually report it. And and those numbers are, are uh, I think, you, you know, your listeners slightly know. up, yeah, yeah slight, up. slightly up yeah. before before and after the pandemic, although not significantly. I mean, um, Chase Boutine, I'm sure you have a different take on this. I mean, what what's your experience over the past year? Did things change when when the state shut down because of the pandemic? Absolutely, things changed overnight. And I want to be really clear: the pandemic has been really challenging for all of us in government, in life personally, professionally, every time someone is a victim of a crime in San Francisco or anywhere in this state, we need to do more work to support victims. We need to help them. We need to support them. We need to heal them. If we look at data around crime in San Francisco, crime is actually down and it's down even in categories that are up in El Dorado or Alameda or other counties. So for example, in San Francisco this year, reported robberies are down about 30%. Overall crimes down about 28%, um, assaults down about 12%. And as you said, Marisa, uh, lower level property crimes are down by even more, by 46%. So we've seen, thanks in part to the pandemic, historic drops in crime. 
And we know there are still crimes that are occurring every day, and some categories have gone up. And those are the ones that we're laser focused on addressing through creative interventions that break the cycle of recidivism, get at root causes of crime, and always put victims first. I mean, uh, to both of you, uh, um, Vern Pearson, if you want to take this first, uh, one thing I know we've heard anecdotally is a lot of concern about domestic violence not being reported this year because people have been trapped at home, possibly with abusers and others. Are, is that an area that you're looking closely at? And, and what can law enforcement do to kind of get at that issue? Well, that's a that's a very real problem. It, 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 as a result of the lockdowns, I, I think we're we're very sensitive to uh, the practical reality that uh, both in domestic violence and in, we can call it family violence, is probably right. the better way to characterize it. You know, child abuse and those other types of crimes that are related uh, within a family, there is a real significant concern that many of those are not being reported, particularly, uh, let's talk about child abuse. So historically, there's what, uh, uh, every teacher is a mandated reporter uh, uh, certain other school officials are mandated reporters and they fill out if they see, you know, what's uh, cause that would uh, uh, things that would cause them to believe that there's a reasonable suspicion of, of child abuse. They make a They fill out an 11166 report. Now, we know that in the last year during the lockdown, those 11166 reports plummeted uh, and we don't believe they plummeted in terms of those mandated reports went down simply because there's less child abuse. We believe it's because there's less contact with other outside people. Same phenomenon is likely true in the area of domestic violence. As things begin to open up, I, I, we, we think we're going to start seeing uh, increased numbers of reports. Uh, it, it, we just don't know for sure, yeah. but that's what it looks like at this point. And Chisa Boudin, I mean, obviously one of the big things nationally on everyone's mind is this um, increased violence against Asian Americans that we've seen and, and concerns about, you know, how that is impacting our communities. Um, I know that you are going to appear with uh, Mayor Lyndon Breed in San Francisco later this morning to talk about this issue. Uh, can you give us any sort of preview on, on what you're going to discuss and, and how you're thinking about this? Protecting vulnerable members of the community is our top priority. Whether we're talking about Asian Americans who may be targeted because of their identity, whether we're talking about the kinds of domestic violence cases that you asked Vern about uh, a moment ago. Um, you know, at the very beginning of the pandemic, we saw the changes and challenges coming. And I'm proud of the work my office did to support the Asian community, Asian American community, and um, vulnerable victims of domestic violence right out of the gate in March and April a year ago. I was doing public service announcements denouncing the xenophobia that uh, then President Trump was spewing from the White House, doing merchant walks in AAPI merchant corridors to promote and support our local owned uh, Asian businesses. And also, we've done about a dozen anti-hate crime trainings over the course of the last year, getting out into the community to raise awareness, to help empower people, to detect, prevent, and report crimes so that we have the tools the evidence and the information we need to respond effectively when crimes do occur. With regard to domestic violence, for example, we stepped up right at the beginning of the pandemic and we found partnerships with other government agencies, with nonprofit and for-profit corporations to create emergency housing and shelter, to create transportation for people who needed to get away from an abuser who they were trapped at home with and find safe haven. 
That's the kind of work we've done over the pandemic. And I'm proud to say we're continuing to fight to protect vulnerable communities, especially in this moment, AAPI members of San Francisco's uh, diverse neighborhoods. I mean, Chase Boudin, I know that um, there's talk right now about hate crime legislation. The District Attorneys Association is uh, supporting a bill that would make sure that hate crimes are deemed violent. Uh, is that, Do you think that that is the way to go? I mean, what what are what's your kind of approach to tackling this? Um, understanding that, you know, a, a, a criminal charge is something that happens after the fact, right? Not before. Do you see that as preventative? I'm always open to creative legislative fixes, and I always welcome more tools in my tool belt to address serious problems facing our community and impacting public safety. As with all crime, hate crimes are best prevented rather than prosecuted. The more we can do to educate, to inform, and to prevent, the safer our communities will be. What that looks like, in my mind, may involve legislative fixes, but it certainly involves community building, it involves multicultural education. It involves tearing down walls that divide us rather than building them up and pointing fingers. We've seen way too much, thanks in large part to the racism out of Washington, D.C. over the last four years, of every tragedy being exploited to tear communities apart. We need to stand together. We need to love each other. We need to heal each other. And when people violate the law, make no mistake, I will hold them accountable. All right. We're going to get Everin Pearson's input on this. And after the break, we'll bring in Tanish Holland. She's executive director for Californians for Safety and Justice. Uh, what questions do you have about criminal justice reform? How have your views on crime or criminal justice changed and why? Call us now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Marisa Lagos. We're talking with Chase Avudin and Vern Pearson about criminal justice in California. We'll be back after a short break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos, and we are speaking today about criminal justice reform with San Francisco District Attorney Chase Boudin and Vern Pearson, El Dorado County's District Attorney. He's also president of the California District Attorney Association. I want to bring in Tanish Hollins. She's executive director of Californians for Safety and Justice. They are a pro-reform uh, advocacy group and also organize survivors of violent crime. Tanish, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Um, so we, we only have you for a few minutes and I do want to, um, first get, uh, if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this work. You are a survivor of crime and you are an organizer in your community, correct? In San Francisco. 
I am. I'm native San Franciscan. Um, you know, I take this issue of crime and violence very personally, very seriously. I've been impacted by crime and violence my entire night, my entire life. Grew up in in uh, Bayview Hunters Point, and um, unfortunately, I lost two brothers to gun violence. And you know, my work in organizing uh, didn't start with the loss of my brothers. It started with looking at the conditions in my community, and you know, sitting with the truth that. Um, so much of the issues that we're facing resulted in overcriminalization of our community, whether it was in issues that young people were facing in school or disputes between neighbors or even more serious violent crime. Um, those penalties really created huge barriers um, to public safety for not only for my community, but for the entire city. And so it really sparked me to get involved in this work and really come with creative solutions that are driven by communities. Um, to address public safety and uh, to prevent crime from happening in the first place. Well, and Tanish, can you talk a little bit about how how y'all are approaching this? I think that, you know, often we've seen in the past a lot of victims groups really citing um, in, in Sacramento with law enforcement pushing tough on crime laws throughout the 90s. That 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 did dominate the discussion. Um, your group has has tried to really kind of change that dynamic, right? Well, yeah, we think it's important, you know, for, for many reasons. One is, you know, before, during, and after the emergence of criminal justice reform in California, the majority of crimes, especially low-level crimes, went unsolved. We've spent a lot of investment in the criminal justice system, billions of dollars. And then when you think about uh, the impact on crime victims and survivors, specifically in the investment, um, the overall investment has been less than 1% of the total criminal justice budget. So we have crime victims who haven't been able to access the the services that they need to heal and recover and rebuild their lives. No, you know, very little support um, or access, especially for survivors from communities of color, communities that are, uh, you know, disproportionately impacted by crime and violence. And then when we've talked to survivors, you know, over the past nine years through surveys and through direct engagement through our network, we've learned that the majority of crime survivors, what they want is to prevent crime from happening in the first place and for crime to you know, never happen again. No one never be harmed again. Um, and so in order for us to achieve that, we've got to focus on prevention. We have to be creative about our solutions and reinvest in things that actually work instead of the same systems that are broken and haven't addressed our needs. Now, being in favor of reform does not mean that we're not in favor of accountability. People definitely deserve accountability and justice that is a part of our public safety approach, but we shouldn't over rely on incarceration or sentencing to achieve that. I mean, it's a difficult issue, right? Every victim is different. Every survivor is different. Every family might want something different. Um, are you, can you just talk a little bit about like, what are your priorities in this moment um, coming, hopefully coming out of this pandemic and seeing, um, you know, the, the the data we talked about at the top that violent crimes have increased and obviously um, all this horrific attacks on our Asian American community members. Yeah, I mean, well, I've been listening to the discussion and we cannot minimize the impact of the pandemic on all of our communities, the isolation, um, you know, the economic instability, and especially when we're talking about vulnerable communities, you know, uh, many of us predicted this. We knew that this would happen. We knew that our infrastructures um, just weren't secure enough to be able to provide the kind of support and safety, especially for survivors and victims. And so right now there's an urgency 
um, especially as we're dealing with the impact of, you know, uptick in certain types of crime. Um, The urgency right now is for us to make sure that we get direct assistance to our victims, and that includes cash assistance. Um, People need money for relocation. People need uh, to be able to meet their basic needs to rebuild their lives. Um, We also need to have a greater investment in um, community-based service providers. You know, these are frontline responders in the community, and these are the folks that are dealing with crime victims. They are meeting them in their moment of crisis. They are walking them through their experiences, and they're supporting them with rebuilding their lives or navigating the justice system if that's a part of their journey. Um, And so, and then also removing other barriers, discrimination. There's so many eligibility restrictions for crime survivors to get access to victims' compensation, let alone the fact that the investment in the Victim Compensation Fund um, is something that definitely needs to be revisited and there needs to be a greater investment in. So until we do these things, we're going to continue to see people in crisis, not getting the support they need. And that's bad for public safety, especially in a moment like this. All right. Tanisha Hollins, Executive Director of Californians for Safety and Justice. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Vern Pearson, El Dorado County District Attorney, I want to bring you back in. Um, what's your reaction to that? As I mentioned, you know, I think that we are hearing different voices in this conversation in recent years. Um, and as Tanish points out, you know, a lot of survivors, regardless of what happens to, to the person who harmed them, feel that they're not always supported by our broader government and law enforcement community. Well, I mean, it's hard not to feel for her and the, the concerns that she's expressing. And I, I would say, I mean, uh, virtually everything she described, uh, I, I see a lot of those same concerns and, and share them. And uh, the fact of the matter is that uh, uh, persons, regardless of color, regardless of uh, uh, social status, uh, if they are the victim of crime, they should receive the, the appropriate types of services from uh uh, from government. And, and if they're not, then that's a real problem. I mean, I know in my county, I, um, I think we do a, an excellent job in that regard. And, and I think uh, uh, that's the feedback that, that, uh, that we get um, from them. But I know that's not true in every county. And I, unfortunately, I think in some of the counties, and I know, I mean, Chase has been in office for, for a relatively short period of time. I think his predecessor did not have a very good record in, in, uh, uh, reaching out to crime victims and working with them in an effective way. And I know he's, he's trying to work on that and be more effective uh, about that type of uh, connectivity with people who are the victims of crimes. So, I mean, but mostly the, 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 the observations she made, I mean, the, the fund that she's referring to, the, the, the fund that's used to uh, provide resources to crime victims, uh, the legislature has, has uh, uh, not uh, uh, fixed that over the last several years, there's been, you know, in the terms of the way the funding works for that, and and it is underfunded. She's exactly right about that, and we need to do something about it. Then the legislature needs to start paying attention to that, and and it, both on the side in terms of victim services, and then the the, the underlying causes of crime. And uh, uh, I agree with uh, Chase. I mean, it, the, the 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 best crimes are the ones from a government standpoint, the ones that are prevented. Um, dealing with them after the fact is is certainly not as effective as, as preventing them in the first place. All right. I'm going to bring in a caller from San Francisco. Susie, welcome. Yeah, hello. Hi, Susie. You're on the air. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, hi. Um, I just uh, thank you for taking my call. Yeah. I'm an Asian woman, and um, 
in the last handful of years, I have been assaulted, attacked, sexually assaulted, and raped. Um, and I've done everything that I thought I'm supposed to do in terms of um, reporting it, going to the police, you know, going to the police multiple times, um, uh, IDing uh, the culprit, you know, in a lineup. I've done everything, um, and uh, I've gotten no help whatsoever. And instead, I've gotten hurt even more. Um, on my way, on my way home from the police department, um, that I had to go to multiple times in the same day after, you know, after I'd been uh, sexually assaulted in in San Francisco, um, uh, I hadn't slept because I was so traumatized. And uh, so driving through Golden Gate Park, um, I was nodding off and I pulled over um, and I and I fell asleep for about an hour and I got a tap on the window from a police officer. I explained to him everything that had just happened and why I had uh, fallen asleep. And uh, he gave me a ticket, multiple hundreds of dollars. Um, And uh, and I'm disabled. And so um, I'm living, I'm on the edge, you know. Yeah, it Um, sounds like you just didn't feel like you've been supported after your trauma. Not even zero, like minus, you know, 150% supported. It's just... It's just unbelievable uh, to me uh, the way, you know, I've been treated and neglected and abused by the system. You know? mm-hmm. um, and the list is long of how I've been um, victimized, okay. how I've been abused by the police as well. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate you. Yeah. yeah and I want to get Chase's response. And I think it's important to note without obviously understanding all the details of Susie's situation that. Brit large, Chase Aboudin. I mean, most violent crimes aren't, nobody's charged. I was looking at recent statistics, right? I mean, this is not, um, this let, is not. Let me just correct yeah. you there, Marissa. Most yeah. violent crimes don't result in arrests. My office charges the majority of cases police bring us. And let me just start with acknowledging the, the, the really horrific things that Susie has experienced and just, you know, just sharing my appreciation for her courage and her willingness to come forward and share her experience because what she's been through no one should have to experience. Um, and, and to your point, Marissa, we, we cannot prosecute crimes like the one Susie described. We don't even know they occur until and unless police are able to successfully investigate, make an arrest, and bring us the case. And police are out there doing their best. It's a difficult job. You know, there's a lot of challenges this year, especially with people wearing masks everywhere that make it harder to identify people. But when police bring us a violent crime, we file charges in the majority of cases. That's true under my leadership, and it was true before I took office. And I want to just go back for a moment to something that Vern said a minute ago. I am really proud of the victim advocates in my office, of the folks who've been here um, for years, dedicating their lives to supporting people who've been harmed by crime. People like Susie, people who um, have suffered things that no one should have to experience. And The staff in my office, the staff I inherited, are creative, they're compassionate, they are the most diverse unit within this office. Um, They're also, sadly, the least well-paid. And that's something that we're trying to fix. My budget proposal this year would dramatically expand our victim services division. It would put the city's money where its mouth is when it comes to supporting people who are harmed by crimes. It would expand uh, advocates to work on property crimes. 
It would hire social workers to help people who suffered from really serious trauma related to crime. It would increase language access for non-English speaking victims and survivors of crime. Basic things that we need to do if we're serious, as I am, about supporting people who've been harmed by crime. Almost all of our victim services work right now is grant funded. We need the city to actually help us help people who've been harmed by crime. That should be our priority, and it is mine. Uh, Vern Pearson, I want to bring you in. I mean, uh, this is, you know, police obviously do yeoman's work. Um, It is a very difficult job. But when you hear stories like that, it means you think we need to do better training for the frontline folks who are often, you know, the first people that, that survivors and victims come into contact with. Well, certainly we can always improve training and, and, and we need to. And, and uh, you know, the, the, the practical reality is, and I, in the intro you've talked about in terms of, uh, uh, you know, reform-minded and, you know, Chase's view, my view, the DA's association. And, and I, I think the, the reality is that we, on, we agree on more than we really disagree on. For instance, uh, uh, the DA's association last year, I, I thought it was probably the most significant police reform bill, uh, which was one that that uh, had to do with misconduct on and and prosecutors being aware of specific misconduct on the part of officers, and that was a bill that Chesa worked with the DA's association to, in order to 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 get that passed, and and it was a very I think a significant bill. Unfortunately, because of politics, the governor vetoed the bill. Uh, but it, it is something that we're all very sensitive to is that there, you know, there is a very small percentage, in my opinion, there's a very small percentage of people that get into law enforcement who for, they should not have ever been hired into law enforcement and they ha- are not properly trained. And some are not properly trained, but they're, you know, they're, they should be in law enforcement. But, but that is something that we collectively all need to deal with and do a better job. I mean, her experiences are just, it's terrible. And then to go through that and then uh, uh, receive a ticket uh, for, from a, a, a police officer, uh, it, it, it's not the way the system's supposed to work. And, and I would echo what Chase has said, is that you, you know, doing the, the victim outreach work, you know, the victim, we have several victim advocates in my office. They do the, the, the work that no one ever hears about. And it's the uh, uh, oftentimes the emotional toll that they feel themselves and I'm sure it's the same in his office like it is in every other DA's office that, that does that. It's very difficult to, to try to walk through someone who's a victim of a violent crime through the criminal justice system and, and the delays and the circumstances then, you know, the defense attorneys and all these other things. It's, it's very difficult for them. Yeah. And they do a very outstanding job in, in, in every office on, on dealing with them. But we have to do more and we have to do more in terms of training. And we have to do more in terms of the way we approach uh, uh, the laws and uh, and things that we change. And I, 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 I'd like to talk on a specific things in terms of some of the change in the laws at the at the right opportunity. Okay, yeah, let's get to that. I want I do want to bring in a couple more callers. Um, Aaron in Novato, I uh, you're on the air, Aaron. Thanks for calling. Good morning. I just wanted to correct DA Pearson with regards to retail robbery. Um, We don't interfere with or interrupt, I work in a retailer, a robbery in process because of the way the laws are or how they have changed. We do so so that we can protect the staff and the customers. We are not trained law enforcement officers. 
That is not what we're there to do. We're there to conduct business and to protect our fellow employees and the customers that we have in our business. And every single robbery within a retail store that I work in is immediately reported, and a police officer usually arrives within about 10 minutes after the incident. And that's all there is, and I can take my message, my yeah. answer off the air. Thanks, Aaron. Um, uh, D.A. Pearson, what's, what's your response to that? Is that your experience? Uh, well, I, I think the, the reasons why those policies are in place, he's exactly right. But he, he's speaking, and we're getting into definitions here in terms of robbery. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's using the term robbery. And I certainly not suggesting that, that uh, as the law currently exists, that under a robbery that law enforcement would not respond uh, and address with that, and and because they certainly should. What I'm talking about is is what's re- commonly referred to as petty theft in terms of theft of less as defined currently nine hundred and fifty dollars or less. Which which if I may, SB eighty two, which is a bill pending for the legislature right now, uh, 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 authored by Senator Skinner, is exactly the wrong headed uh, type of concern that that we have. Uh, uh, essentially, what that bill does is say a robbery, what this gentleman is referring to, a robbery where there isn't a, a great bodily injury or the suspect doesn't use a firearm becomes a petty theft and a misdemeanor. And uh, 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 most of these, you've seen uh, all of us, we've seen these horrible, violent assaults uh, increasingly on, on Asian Americans. Uh, most of them are what we call strong arm robberies. Uh, And in most of them, there isn't great bodily injury or what the legal definition of great bodily injury, which it it, it might be different than what what most people interpret it as. But, uh, and most of them, there isn't a firearm. Uh, Under this proposed bill, those would become misdemeanors. Well, no, let me just weigh okay, well, in here, You know what, you guys, we're gonna we're coming up on a break. We can get back um, at this because I would love to hear Chase's take on that bill as well. Um, we're talking about criminal justice here on Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Um, we're going to take a short break and would love to hear from you. Call us or uh, find us on social media, forum at kqed.org. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Uh, We are talking about how the pandemic is affecting crime and the politics surrounding criminal justice in California with Chesa Boudin. He's San Francisco's district attorney, as well as El Dorado County District Attorney Vern Pearson, who's also president of the statewide District Attorneys Association. Um, Before the break, uh, D.A. Pearson was talking about some legislation that uh, dealing with petty theft. Um, And I think this does get into kind of the meat of one of the debates that we've seen in recent years around, I mean, retail theft uh, has has been a big topic on these. Um, uh, Chase Boudin, you, you were trying to jump in. This is a bill by uh, Oakland Assemblywoman Nancy Skinner, or Senator, excuse me, used to be an Assemblywoman, um, that would essentially say that, that most um, petty theft remains a misdemeanor, correct? It, it's, a, it's a bill that would change certain categories of 
crimes that are now classified as robbery and potentially make them petty theft. But I think it's important to remember, you know, this is just a proposal. It's a bill. It's subject to amendment. I think it probably does need some amendment. But it also gets at a really important issue, which is that for decades, people across the country, across the state, have been using the three strikes law to uh, send mostly black and brown young men to prison for life for crimes that are essentially shoplifting gone wrong. That draconian approach has not only clogged our prisons, but it's also bankrupted our state and local governments, deprived our communities of the resources that are needed to prevent people from shoplifting in the first place. Education, healthcare, housing, drug treatment, mental health care. Those are the kinds of services and investments that we should be investing in and prioritizing if we're committed to keeping our communities safe. We don't need to send people to prison for life for a shoplifting incident gone wrong. All right, I'm going to bring uh, D.A. Pearson back, but I want to read a couple of comments that I think get at the di- the, the divisions here. Uh, Chris writes, and uh, this is from San Francisco, I believe, anybody that looks around the city can't believe that crime is down, as statistics purport to show. Walk around neighborhoods and see garage windows broken into, packages stolen every day, people harassed, shoplifting right in front of your eyes. How does the district attorney square what all citizens can see every day with these statistics? Something is not working. On the other hand, Noel tweets, jail shouldn't be the main mental health treatment option. The guy who tried to steal my bike and broke my garage window was arrested, but probably needs treatment. How can we create more effective mental health treatment in our society? D.A. Pearson, I mean, doesn't that show, I think, the difference that people, you know, people have very different views on this. Well, they do. But, you know, in 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 Chase's comment in response to it there's there's a big part of what he's saying i completely agree with him and and then with the two commenters i uh, uh, as well so I, I wrote an article you can find it it's very easy to find it, it's you can look up the uh, the headline was hard truths about deinstitutionalization and i don't want to get into all the specifics but the, the, that was a couple of years ago it's published in a number of different newspapers but it's talking about this concept that the one of the commenters made about we we cannot and should not incarcerate in county jails and state prisons people who are mentally ill because we don't know what else to do with them and that is what we have done over the last many years in terms of we we closed the mental hospitals in the late 60s early 70s and we did not properly uh, uh, build uh, the right type of treatment centers to deal with people uh, and so what ended up happening is we closed mental hospitals and our, our jail and prison populations went up dramatically. And we have as much as 40 percent or more of the people that are in jails and prisons, uh, uh, not just here in California, but throughout the United States that are actually mentally ill and could really benefit from some type of treatment uh, in order to prevent them from committing the crimes that they uh, that caused them to be arrested and incarcerated. So that's a very real problem. Now, on the other side of it, in terms of crime in San Francisco, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't be there. And I, I, I know I know Chesa and I like him and I consider him a friend. Uh, um, we disagree on some things. We agree on many things. I do know that I hear from people that live in San Francisco that they feel as though they're they're guinea pigs in a in a larger social experiment that's going on. And that, uh, well, some Vern, of the Vern, we got to introduce you to some more people, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> we got to come, come down and visit us in San Francisco and we'll introduce you to some people. But here's the thing. San Francisco is a resilient city. It's a vibrant city and it's a safe city. We're going through historic challenges. I took office 
just uh, two months before the pandemic hit. My entire tenure as district attorney has been shaped and defined by challenges none of us could have predicted. And uh, I you know, am really proud of the work that we've done as a city to fight back against the pandemic and the impact it's had on us. The streets are abandoned, stores are closed down, tourists disappeared. All of those things are out of our control. But what we can do and what we are doing is taking every single crime the police bring to us seriously. We've filed more than 5,000 new criminal cases since I took office, everything from misdemeanor shoplifting to murder. Just yesterday, one of my assistant district attorneys secured a conviction in a jury trial that took far longer than it would have pre-COVID in a sexual assault of an unconscious person case. That's the work we're doing to keep San Francisco safe. And we're doing it every single day, whether it's over Zoom or in person or at community town halls or on the streets where my investigators are out serving subpoenas and making arrests. We're doing everything in our power and we will continue to do so to make this the safest and the best city in the country. We are talking about how the pandemic's affecting crime and the politics surrounding criminal justice with Chase Boudin, San Francisco's DA, and Vern Pearson, El Dorado County's DA. What questions do you have about criminal justice reform? How have your views on crime or criminal justice changed and why? Call us now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Uh, and you can also email questions to forum at kqed.org. Um, Rebecca writes, I was, this is kind of very different than what we're talking about. Uh, identity theft. She was re- recently a victim of an identity theft scheme that was fairly sophisticated. We gave lots of information to law enforcement to track down the suspects, but never heard back from them. She wants to know how this crime is categorized. Is it statistically on the rise? Is it considered victimless since credit card companies take the hit? Uh, she says she's still worried about the information people have, right? Because of, because of broader identity theft concerns. Um, Vern Pearson, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I feel for her because and so many people here in California are the victims of identity theft. But and, and let's talk about a, a big part of it. So you, you, you cannot live in California and not be aware of the problem of the unemployment uh, insurance fraud uh, scandal that's taken place over the last years during the pandemic. Um, uh, uh, somewhere between 10 and 30 billion dollars of our taxpayer money was stolen from us by criminals. And an awful lot of it was identity theft. In other words, someone like this lady, I don't, and I don't know for sure uh, on this, but, but someone like that, some criminal used her identity, applied for unemployment benefits, received a card, and then she will receive a 1099 in the mail that identifies to her that her identity has been th- stolen and she has to work through, through dealing with that. It is a real, real significant problem and it's a massive problem. And the practical reality is that law enforcement is overwhelmed. It, they get complaints all the time. They don't know, you know, they're not, there's inadequate training for officers in terms of to know uh, how to deal with it, the types of tools that they need to, to correct uh, their identity and deal with it. The, the, the reporting, so, you know, the very, there's all sorts of services out there where you can uh, uh, credit reporting uh, uh, services that, that monthly will tell you if someone's applied. That's probably the most effective thing. Uh, unfortunately, as she indicated, the, the credit card companies have just kind of viewed this as uh, an annoyance and a cost of doing business. And uh, so we haven't been real effective in dealing with that. But, but so much of that fraud 
is is not even being perpetrated by here in, people here in the United States. I mean, we've all heard these the Nigerian prince scam and things like that. Those are people from Nigeria or from other countries o- overseas, from Russia or other various other places where they're perpetrating, they're stealing people's identity on the dark web, selling it to other people and uh, and reusing those identities over and over again. The bit, you know, the best thing is, you know, change your passwords on a regular basis. Uh, try to do a credit reporting uh, 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 verification type service, things like that, uh, uh, because it, it, it is relatively easy to commit the crime and the consequences are very low. Um, I want to bring in Mike in San Francisco. Mike, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, good morning, uh, gentlemen. Um, I wanted to make a couple quick points. Number one, I have a background in criminal justice on the therapeutic angle. I was a former counselor. I'm also a family member to someone with severe mental health issues and been a mental health advocate. Quickly, I wanted to point out that Mr. Boudin has some excellent, excellent policies, and it would be very unfair for people to judge the efficacy of those policies because he really never got a chance to really make them work because of COVID. And I remember uh, former district attorney, God rest his soul, passed away, Karen Palanan, had uh, many similar policies uh, providing treatment instead of incarceration for drug offenders, nonviolent and concentrating the legal muscle on violence. And we had a very, very safe city at that time. So I think that uh, Mr. Boudin deserves uh, some credit, deserves another chance to implement these policies now that COVID is going to lift. The second point I wanted to make to the other district attorney, I believe, uh, Mr. Pearson, I'm forget, I, I believe that's your name, is regardless of what somebody's approach is on criminal justice, conservative, liberal, left, right, I don't care. I think we can all agree that we must implement policies that prevent the, the people with serious mental health issues from ending up in jails and prisons. This is a crime against humanity. I think, yeah, um, I think the DA agreed with you on that, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you so much. We really appreciate your call. I mean, Chase Boudin, do you feel like uh, you've been stymied um, from from instituting your policies? I have a, a, a caller or somebody who wrote kind of the opposite, saying you can't take credit for any drops in crime, that, that, that that's in spite of your policies and due to the lockdown. So there's feelings out there. Yeah, my entire tenure as district attorney has been shaped and defined by the COVID pandemic, right? I mean, I, I've barely been able to go into my office since since I was sworn in. So that's that's the reality. It's not about taking credit or pointing fingers. It's about acknowledging the circumstances we're in and the very serious obstacles that we're facing. Um, the fact is, overall reported crime is down. Police brought my office uh, fewer new arrests, fewer new possible cases to prosecute in 2020 than in any year in in recent history. Um, And despite court closures, we managed to continue to intervene in ways aimed at holding people who cause harm accountable. We managed to expand our victim services, including uh, support for small merchants, small business owners, for victims of violent crime, um, and we did that despite the fact that my budget has been reduced in a way that it means I have fewer full-time employees on my budget than at any point in the last five years. I started off as at exactly the most difficult time to try and make change, to try and get people into mental health care or into drug treatment. A lot of the uh, residential treatment programs that we try to send people to stopped taking, uh, stopped taking people. They said they, they couldn't do it with COVID. They wanted to do it over Zoom in some cases. That's not an effective way to provide mental health care or drug treatment to people with really serious issues. And sadly, because of the pandemic, we don't always have a lot of better options. But um, we have a tremendous amount to be proud of. And I am confident that as we reopen, we're going to see the city we know and love come back better than ever.
All right. I want to read a few comments. Daniel writes, I completely disagree with the assembly bill that's defining assault without a firearm as a misdemeanor. That is shameful and horrific. How much pain do I need to receive or tolerate before I can get justice? I'm horrified assault is an assault. Uh, it's bodily Mar- Marisa, let me just correct yeah. a misunderstanding there. The, the assembly bill or the, the bill at issue has nothing to do with assault. An assault with a firearm will still uh, be a without, strike. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah an assault, regardless. An assault is still an assault. We can still prosecute assault as a felony, uh, regardless of the dollar amount. This bill does nothing to address assault. So let's just you know, make sure we're clear on the facts. Okay. Uh, there are definitely areas where this bill could be improved. But it has nothing to do with assault. I also well, have a comment from Max. Yeah, that? go for it. So, so this is one of those things, and I go back to the the comment that the back and forth that Chase and I before the break. Um, there was a comment that he made, and I and I agree with him. There there have been under the three strikes law, there were some DAs and some counties that in, uh, uh, treated uh, uh, what was really an overblown petty theft uh, like a felony. And the famous case is out of Los Angeles County, and uh, it was a pizza theft uh, uh, that a person received a 25 to life sentence. That should not have happened in the first place. Uh, It would not have happened under my watch, and most of the DAs in the state of California would not have gone along with that. We have the ability under under the various statutes and and the case law while under three strikes we're supposed to plead and prove, we have the ability to work with the courts and the defense to, in order to, to ensure that that doesn't happen. And we have an obligation. And if it has happened, which I believe it has, we have to reform and change that. And so I, I've been committed to many years to changing those types yeah. of things. But reforming something doesn't mean that you change the laws in a reckless way. SB 82, the bill that, that we've been talking about, in my opinion, is reckless as it's currently drafted. And I know. But, yeah. But, 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 but Vern, well, let's can, just can, I, can I actually broaden this out yes. a little bit? Because I think at the heart of this is something that you guys are talking about with three strikes, which is this question of enhancements, right? And the question of not, you know, is an underlying violent crime chargeable, but can you add on extra years for circumstances? And this has really become a point of focus in Los Angeles. So Chase Abudin, can you kind of talk about that? I mean, this we're talking about the discretion prosecutors have to broadly charge cases, right? Right. And we need laws that give us the tools and the power to hold people accountable in ways that are serious when they commit serious crimes. I believe that we have that. And I believe that there's there's no other country in the world um, that we would want to compare ourselves to that has harsher punishments than, than we do here in the United States and in California. Um, we don't need things like the death penalty. We don't need things like Uh, three strikes to keep our community safe. There are very, very few situations where someone who's committed a serious or violent crime um, can't be sent to prison for a long time just based on the facts of that case. And so what we try to focus on in my office is holding people accountable for what they've done and what we can prove they've done, not for something we already punished them for when they were a juvenile. We should treat kids like kids. We should stop using juvenile priors as ways to double and triple uh, prison sentences for people many of whom struggle with mental illness, uh, homelessness, addiction, things that we can address in ways that are far more humane, cost-effective, and save resources so we can focus on the people who've been harmed by the crimes, invest in expanding the amount of money available for trauma-supported services, for, okay. uh, for uh, victims' compensation, 
Yeah. There's not nearly enough money going into those services. And one of the reasons is we've invested exclusively in building new jails and prisons, and we've treated victims as pieces of evidence. We've got to put our money where our mouth is and invest in victim services, invest in centering the process around victims as human beings who've been harmed and who need to heal, not just treating them like pieces of evidence. All right. Less than a minute left, D.A. Pearson. I'm going to give you the last word. Well, I, I appreciate it and appreciate the conversation. And, and I do think that it, it, there's truth in, in some of what Chase is saying there and I, I, where we agree. There's a difference. You were alluding to former DA from San Francisco, DA Gascon down in L.A. He issued blanket policies that, that, that do not do what Chase is alluding to. They do not consider the individual circumstances of an individual offender or an individual case. They are just blanket across the board policies that say things like, you cannot prosecute, you cannot file a hate crime enhancement in LA. And he had to backpedal on that one a little bit because he realized that a hate crime is not a crime for the most part. It's an enhancement that's that's added onto it in an unusual circumstances. That That is the problem of what's happening in LA. And again, it goes back to reform is one thing, reckless reform is something else. And All I right, think- we're gonna, yeah, have to leave it there. But Lots to talk about, lots of conversation to come. Thank you so much. We have been talking about crime in the pandemic. Thank you to DA Chase Boudin and DA Vern Pearson. We also spoke earlier with Tanish Hollins, Executive Director of Californians for Safety and Justice. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim up next. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.